one of um, the challenges we face in doing what we do in living how Christ called us to live is that there's so many voices within the body and there's so many distractions and if you want to be I guess we have to respond from our spirits to what the Lord asks us to do. But our flesh can always find somebody who will tell us that's not scriptural. Or you don't need to do that. Or that's not relevant to today. Or people won't do that. People won't follow that. People can't cope with more than 50 minutes anymore. People this, people that. And then, you know, when you, we have so much exposure to so many voices. But the voice we need to hear is the voice of God. And so in that, we only have two things. We have the word and we have the spirit. Look at me. When we say word and spirit, that doesn't include social media. That doesn't include hundreds and thousands of sermons you can listen to every week on the internet. Because we need the word and the spirit to be able to discern. <laughs> because otherwise we, we, we just allow our flesh to find excuses. When we know in our spirit God's asking us to follow him more, more closely. To, to, to walk in his love and give that love away because we're walking in the spirit. To have that fire inside because the fire of the spirit has touched us. You know, there's, there's a reason when Israel was following Jesus in the desert, they followed the cloud and they followed fire. Because God is real. And following God, when you're in his presence, you know you're in his presence. If you don't know you're in his presence, you're not in it. Because he's a real God. And the Holy Spirit is a real God who touches you and speaks to you. And sets your heart on fire and burns in you. So we desire that. We desire that. But then you'll hear voices that will say, you don't have to be that serious. You said the prayer, you're okay. Just come to church occasionally. It's fine. It's not fine. Jesus comes back for a bride who he knows. Not a bride who was occasionally at the back of the room. And he's never met. Now I'm really in trouble when I get home. So, I'm going to ask Sarah to come up now. Sarah's preaching this morning, I'm not. You might, might, might think, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> but Sarah's preaching this morning. And 
I want you to listen to what, what she's got to say because I believe it will give us some help amongst all those voices. I've not done anything yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm only preaching so I can take my mask off. <laughs> There's not as much room as I had last time I did this. I was round the other way last time. Wow. Okay, let's try and get my head in the game. I wasn't sure when I was coming up or if I was coming up, actually. <laughs> so, today is my second message on discernment. So a few months ago, you may remember, um, I looked at a bit of an overview of what discernment is, why it's important, and how we grow in it. So if, if you didn't catch that one, I would recommend looking it up because it, it helps to really dovetail in particular with some of the stuff that we've been talking about this morning. Um, it looked at the fact that we're not looking for errors. We're not hunting out the fake um, but actually we're looking for treasure so that we don't get fooled by the fake. We looked at the Bereans in Acts, um, saw how they were examining the scriptures daily um, to see if what they were being told lined up with the word and how important it is that we continue to do that. Um, and that, that is our uh, example of how to use discernment um, and that the Bible is the plumb line. The Bible is what we're measuring things against. Um, and so therefore we need to know the word. So that was kind of how do we spot dodgy teachings? How do we spot dodgy ideas? And today is the one that scares Cheryl a bit. Because um, it's how do we spot dodgy people? And what do we do about it? <laughs> um, Right, so I'm going to start by reading Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23. This is Jesus speaking. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. I mean, if Mark thinks he's being direct, I think, you know, <laughs> that's even more direct, isn't it? Um, so, I mean, this feels like a bit of a thorny issue to tackle, but Jesus went at it head on um, and I, I got for, for my birthday I thought I was getting this for Christmas actually but um, turns out Robert wrapped it up for my birthday uh, so I had to wait a couple of extra days 
um, I got this infographic Bible. Um, Bethan had brought it along to the Bible study because Scott has got one. And I looked at it and thought, that's good. I've got to get one of those. And it's got all these different diagrams. If you like a graph or a chart or something that helps you to visualize something, then this is an excellent resource. Um, and there's one thing that caught my eye. I've not had much chance to really get into it yet, but there's one thing that caught my eye where it lays out what are the, the top subjects that Jesus taught on. What did he spend the most time teaching about? Um, and one of the top five is the enemy. And that surprised me. And what surprised me was actually love is not in that list. Um, not that I'm trying to make a point there, um, but it just it surprised me. So... We don't like talking about these kind of things. It feels a bit dangerous, and maybe the only reason I'm doing it is because I'm new at this, and I'm a bit uh, naive, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we quite like things that make us feel a bit gooey and loved, don't we? Not, not things that make us feel like we're potentially going to criticise others or um, judge other people or um, just potentially feel a bit scared because the enemy's out to try and deceive us. Um, but... This is actually a really common topic in the New Testament. And I started trying to pull together verses, as you do, Bible passages to see what does the Bible say about this. I've got to try and you know, make sure that I've looked at most things. And I realized there's loads of verses, absolutely loads, way more than I'd realized. So I want to try and give you an idea of just how much the Bible has to say about it. I'm told that if I gesticulate... Then I get my, my next slide up. So this, I've put the books of the Bible up here. Um, sorry, the New Testament. I have, where there's more than one letter by the same name, I have just put them as one entry, partly because I didn't have much room, but also because a lot of the recipients were the same people. So Paul writes to the Corinthians once, he's writing to the same people in the second letter. It's not always the case with all of those um, things, but I thought I'd put that up there um, like that. Now, I want to see where there are passages about false teachers, false prophets, or discernment. Yeah. Almost every single book in the New Testament, almost, has something to say about false teachers, or false prophets, or the need to be discerning. And I was really quite shocked by it. And it was also a bit daunting because I thought, oh, okay, well, I've got to wade through all of this now. And this might not be all of them because I didn't read the whole of the New Testament to find, find my references. Um, but what can we take from this? Well, God thinks this is quite important. Jesus warned us about false teachers more than once. Paul warned nearly everyone he wrote to. Almost every single group that he wrote to he, decided, he, he needed to tell them to be aware that there are people out there with unpure motives towards us. You know, as soon as the gospel was there to be preached, Satan was trying to use people to pervert it, to deny it, and to profit from it. And we might be 2,000 years after these warnings were given, but do we think the problem's gone away? No. <laughs> Actually... What we've done is these types of people, we've given them the internet. <laughs> they now, we, we now have at our disposal, sorry, no, they have that at their disposal, but what we have is probably more access to false teachers than we have ever had in the whole of history. 
That's cheery, isn't it? <laughs> I'm here to cheer you up this morning. Um, but it means it's imperative that we're wise. It's imperative that we're seeking always to try and hone our discernment. This is not going to get better. It's probably only going to get worse. So the Bible talks a lot about false teachers, false prophets. That made it hard to know where to start. What, what scriptures do you focus on? So I went with one of Mark's principles of red words win. I thought we should start with what Jesus says. Um, and then I'll try and bring in some points that I've collated out of the other passages. Um, I've tried to approach it with a sort of data analysis thing where I've looked at all of this to try to find common themes, um, important points, and try and put them all together for us to get a bigger picture. Um, it's not comprehensive because there's so much of it. So the first question I want to ask is, what do false teachers look like? So we're going to look again at that passage that I read at the beginning. I'm going to read it out again. Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. So the first thing that Jesus refers to is wolves in sheep's clothing. To get a further idea of what that means, I'm going to pull another scripture in, which is in 2 Corinthians 11. I've got a lot of slides today. I, I, I sort of apologize for that, but also I thought it would just prove quite helpful because there's a lot that I'm skipping through. Um, so 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So we can see really clearly that a lot of false prophets and false teachers look like normal Christians. They look like us. They dress like us. They pretend to behave like us. They use the same Christian language that we do. They're disguised as servants of righteousness. In the book of Jude, when talking about false teachers, it says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. So deceivers are not obvious. They don't walk into church and go, I'm here to deceive you. <laughs> no, it says they creep in. They're subtle. We might have a hard time noticing them. I don't notice people straight away. As Jesus said, though, on the inside, they're ravenous wolves. And what does a wolf do? What does it seek to do? It's looking, it's actively looking for the weakest members. It doesn't, you know, Satan hasn't got any shame about this. He doesn't think, oh, well, you know, they're only kids, I'm not coming after them. 
No, he's, he's really serious. And actually, I find the scariest part of the passage where Jesus is talking is verse 22, where it says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Because these wolves are not just disguised as Christians, apostles, prophets, teachers. Sometimes they're prophesying, casting out demons and doing powerful things. And they claim that they're doing it in the name of Jesus. I think this is one of the big reasons that they can be successful in deceiving people. Matthew 24 says, Jesus says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Great signs and wonders. Now, to a church that desires the miraculous, why wouldn't that be appealing? Why wouldn't that grab our attention and our admiration? Of course it would. So the devil, through these people, is trying to lead the elect astray, trying to find a gap to pick people off and pull them from the shepherd. But the key is what Jesus says to them. I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Because these people, despite what they claim, they're not in a relationship with God. They don't know him, and he doesn't have their heart. They're not abiding in the vine, which is why he says that they're not able to bear good fruit. But wait, aren't they prophesying? Aren't they casting out demons, setting people free, healing them, and stuff like that? Is that not good fruit? No. Fruit is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That fruit is the product of the genuine work of the Holy Spirit over time. And it should affect the full character, the full behavior of a believer. Ephesians 5 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. You know, people can know all the right things to say, can't they? But if they're not backed up with consistent evidence in their character, it's just empty words. And there's a, a helpful verse in 1 Timothy um, I think adds a bit of wisdom for spotting things like this, because it's not always straightforward. But it says, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. And what that's saying is that sometimes it's really obvious that someone's not walking with God. It's kind of like the you know, stuff about them. It, it kind of comes out and announces itself to you quite early on. It goes ahead of them almost. So you spot them coming, you think, mm, mm And then there's other people who it's only when they've kind of left and you look at what they've left in their wake, like, you know, the wake of a ship, that you think, well, that's not good, is it? There's a trail behind them of destruction. And I didn't see it at the time, but actually they've left this strife it just seems to follow them around. So let's move on to some other scriptures to try and keep piecing together the biblical evidence for how we identify wolves in sheep's clothing. There's uh, a little nugget in 2 Peter 2. But false prophets who arose among the people. No, let me start that again. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Notice that he says there, there will be false teachers among you. He's fully confident that that's the case. You know, Peter's probably writing to a group of churches here. Um, can you imagine somebody now writing to a group of churches and telling them, so matter-of-factly, there will be false teachers among you? Like, how would that go down? Um, I tried to imagine that, <laughs> just because it made me laugh. I thought you, you would have one group of people, of really indignant people. How dare they suggest that? We, of course we don't have false prophets. We're a King James-only church. Uh, <laughs> then you might have another group I think this would probably be the, the group I'd be in which goes oh my goodness what if it's me <laughs> and then I think you might have another group that just tries to gloss over it because it's, it's not very attractive teaching is it and, and I can't make that into an Instagram post and it might put people off so I think we'll just all focus on how much God loves us instead <laughs> I'm being a bit extreme there because, well, it's because it makes me laugh. Um, but in those examples, we can see just how easy it is to miss or to dismiss the warnings that the Bible gives us. And sometimes the Bible gives us quite uncomfortable truths, and we don't really want to confront them. You know, we, maybe we're arrogant, maybe we're distracted, or maybe we're just dismissive. But if we look at what these false teachers do, they're secretly, so covertly, without us realizing, trying to bring in destructive heresies, teachings that don't line up with the word of God. And they might even deny Christ himself. And it brings upon them swift destruction. Now, I want to point out, when it says about denying Christ, I think we like to think we'd spot that one, don't we? Um, <laughs> I like to think I'd spot that one a mile off. But actually, one of the most prevalent false teachings that we see confronted in the New Testament, something that comes up again and again, is that of mixing law into the teaching of grace. This idea that we have to do certain things to obtain or to maintain our salvation. And somehow, perhaps, it just depends on us, even just a little bit. And you might remember from the last message I did, there were some statistics that I'd found um, and there was this survey in 2016 where 39% of American evangelical Christians who were surveyed say, stated that they agreed with the statement, my good deeds help me earn my place in heaven. Now that is a false teaching. It's clearly been a problem for 2,000 odd years. And it tries to deny the master who bought them. That's what the, the verse says. That teaching is trying to deny Jesus because it's only Jesus, him alone, that's bought our salvation. And it's a free gift. It's all about him and what he's done. It's nothing to do with us and anything we've done other than to just accept it and say thank you. So as soon as we start to introduce the idea of it being dependent on us, we start to deny what he's done. And it's subtle, but it's destructive. <laughs> So the next thing we can get from the passage in 2 Peter, we have this phrase, many will follow their sensuality. So what does that mean? I thought that should be quite simple, but then I looked it up. And <laughs> the Greek word that's used here for sensuality 
it's been translated in so many different ways across different translations. I thought I'd make a list. So apart from sensuality, we have depraved conduct, shameful immorality, pernicious ways, destructive ways, indecent behavior, shameful ways, licentious ways, lascivious doings, <laughs> abominations, evil ways, riotousness, sexual freedom, and last but not least, debauched lifestyles. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? <laughs> but I've found it quite helpful in this instance to try and use scripture to interpret scripture so um, that we can see what, what it is that people are leaving to follow. So I've got three passages all about false teachers or wolves in sheep's clothing up on the screen. You can see um, I've highlighted a bit in green to show where it's talking about sensuality or sensual persons. The third one I'll explain a bit more in a minute. So the first one, Jude 1, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the, prophet, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. To Peter, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. That's talking about people that are quite new Christians, people who are kind of on the edge a little bit. They're the vulnerable ones quite often. And this Romans verse, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. So, as I said, I've highlighted in the first two, in green, the sensuality bit but there's a couple of other common themes in here so in where am I in my notes we've got the red words which are about walking in your own lusts walking in the flesh and then you've got the blue words which is about flattery there's a method here which false teachers or wolves in sheep's clothing try to use to pull people away, to follow them. And that is that they appeal to the flesh. And Paul teaches at great length and in great detail in Romans about the fact that we're engaged in a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Yeah, we're exhorted to walk in the flesh, not walk in the spirit. And it wouldn't be necessary to tell us that if it wasn't difficult, I think. If this was easy, we'd just do it. Um, and the fleshly things are appealing. That's the problem, right? Yeah. But Satan uses the desires of our flesh again and again and again to try and draw people away into sin and into deception. James 1, 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. If we think about Eve in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, it was her fleshly desires that drew her away into deception. Satan throws a lie at her, first of all, that she won't die. And then he follows it up with an appeal to the flesh. He, he says, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. It appeals to her flesh. It then says that she saw the fruit was good to eat, 
the tree pleasant to look at and desirable to make one wise. It looked enjoyable. Satan got her to believe that there was something extra that she needed beyond what God had already given her. And that pattern has been working for Satan since the dawn of time. He still repeats it over and over again. He knows that our fleshly desires are an easy target. Because when we follow them, we're not following the spirit. And what does flattery, smooth talk, what does that do? Well, again, it appeals to our flesh, really, doesn't it? It tries to soften us up. It tries to gain our trust. And it plays to our egos, to our pride. It's a bit like the classic stereotype of a salesman. You know, they're, they're full of smooth talks and compliments and flattery, but it's all empty, really. It's just designed to stroke our ego just enough that we'll listen to them so that they can try and sell us something that we don't need, we don't want, or we can't afford. So we'll add following fleshly desires and flattering to gain an advantage to our list of what the Bible shows us. But I want to make a couple of points because knowing myself, I know that right now I'd probably be sitting there thinking from the last two points, they could apply to almost anyone, including ourselves. And that's the kind of worry that I am. Um, I'd be thinking, oh no. The other day I had three pieces of cake because it was so good. And then I offered it to Nicola, told her how good it tasted. <laughs> I encouraged her to have three pieces too. <laughs> or I'd be sitting there and thinking, oh, I can never pay anyone a compliment again now, ever again, because they'll think I'm buttering them up to try and deceive them. <laughs> but actually, all of us, we face a challenge every day, don't we? We just had a whole season of it, um, of whether we overindulge our flesh or not. <laughs> Um, so actually, I wanted to say, in this context of wolves in sheep's clothing, we're not talking about do we sometimes give in to the flesh, but rather are we actively following it and trying to pull others along with us? We're not talking about sheep that are struggling to live by the Spirit. We're talking about wolves that don't have the Spirit. And one of the things that can be quite helpful is to look at Galatians 5, where it lists um, not just the fruits of the spirit, but it also lists the fruits of the flesh. It gives us a much broader idea of what these approaches produce. So there's loads more scriptures that I could have pulled together. I could have expounded to try and make this list, but I'm going to leave it like that for now. And I'm going to move on to the next question, which is what do we do about false teachers? And this is, this is actually quite a tricky question. Well, it feels like it, because um, it, it can be, you know, you can get to a point where you say, well, do you know what? I'm just not sure about that person. I'm really not. I think they might be dodgy, but what do I do now? Do I leave the church, find somewhere else to go, try and find some more perfect people? Do I? <laughs> now, my, my parents actually told me, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> Do I make it my mission just to, to tell other people that I think they're dodgy? Do I, do I try and warn them, you know, in love, that, that them over there, I, I'm pretty sure they're iffy. Do I grab my baseball bat and go after them? Or my personal favourite, should I set up a website to name and shame all these people I'm not sure about? Because when they exist... Um, <laughs> 
Well, let, I want to see what the Bible says because I was quite surprised to find that actually the Bible gives really simple advice um, on what we do about this. And I don't think I'd properly seen it before. But I want to go back to a passage that we, we briefly looked at earlier in Romans 16. But I want to start a verse earlier in verse 17, which says, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who cause dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. We've got two instructions here, haven't we? The first one is to take note of these people. And I thought I wanted to dive into the Greek a little bit, see what does this mean? Should I be making a list? Is this something from my website? Apparently not. In this instance, taking note of is more of making a mental note. It's being aware of something. Um, a lot of translations just state, watch out for. So we're staying alert. And if we notice something that we're not sure about, or someone that we're not sure about, we make a mental note of them and we avoid them. We avoid them. It's quite simple, really. Some other translations say, turn away from them. And I was sort of thinking about this a bit, like when we're setting up the music equipment and we might have like a microphone or a cable that we've realized is a bit dodgy. And if we use that cable, then we end up with a crackly microphone or something. And so what we tend to do is we'll make a mental note of it and we'll see it and we'll think, I'm going to avoid that one. I'm going to use this one instead. It's that kind of making a mental note. It denies it the opportunity to cause us problems rather than having to tackle something like in an aggressive way. And I think it's a bit like that with wolves in sheep's clothing. I think we can avoid quite a lot of problems simply just by avoiding them. If it's someone online, then just stop listening. Unfollow them. Walk away. If everybody did that, if everyone had discernment and did that, then we'd just deny them the oxygen and they wouldn't have an audience. In Ephesians 5... 6 to 7, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't partner with these people. Avoid them. And in, in some ways, it's kind of easier when you don't know the person to avoid them, isn't it? <laughs> I can just not go on that YouTube channel or whatever. But. When we, when we do know the person, it's a bit more tricky. And actually, there's a, a passage in 2 Thessalonians which takes that a step further. Um, it says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We've got the same pair of instructions again, haven't we? Take note of them have nothing to do with them. But then we're told something about how we treat the person. We don't treat them as an enemy. We warn them as a brother. Now that, that passage isn't actually specifically talking about wolves in sheep's clothing. It, all we have to go on really in the context from the previous verses is that they've got a number of idle, lazy people who are being quite busybodies. So does that mean we can dismiss it as being out of context? I don't, I don't think so. Um, because how do we know for sure whether someone is a sheep 
in a bit of sin or a wolf in disguise. And I think we don't always, and we must always, always, always seek to take the route of love. So even if we're convinced that someone is dodgy, we don't decide they're the enemy and set ourselves against them. We start by treating them like a wayward brother that's playing with fire. We want to warn them, but we also don't want to get so close that we get burned by what they're playing with. And the great thing about keeping ourselves in love in our interactions is that it doesn't just minister God's love to the other person, give them the chance to come to repentance, but it actually has a positive effect on us. Ephesians 4, when talking about the concept of becoming mature believers, says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I think that first bit sounds a lot like what we're talking about really, doesn't it? Getting carried away by different doctrines, human cunning um, and deceitful schemes. But it says we're to speak the truth with love. And as we looked at in my previous message, we're, meant to be, we're not meant to be focusing on the bad. We are meant to be focusing on the good and on the truth. And that's what we should be speaking. It's what we should be meditating on. And then it says that we will grow up in every way into Christ. And that's what we want, isn't it? To be more and more like Jesus in every way. So I've got one final question. We've got a grasp on what wolves in sheep's clothing might look like. We've got the fact that our instructions are to avoid them whilst still proceeding in love. But what does it mean? Sorry, but does that mean we're just meant to leave them to spread dangerous teachings? Because I mean, that's the sort of thing that bothers me. Okay, God, well, I, you know, essentially I'm not really doing a lot, but they're still there, they're still going, they're still saying this awful stuff. Um, and in, in some ways, we, we actually don't have a choice. People that we spot online, we can't do anything about them. We're not in a position to do so. All we can do is choose who we will and won't listen to. And we should always be keeping our focus on finding truth rather than flagging up bad things. When Jesus taught the parable of the wheat and the tares, he presented a really clear image that where he'd sowed wheat, an enemy had come along and sowed weeds. And the servant comes to him and says, shall I go and pull the weeds out? And the farmer says, no, because you might end up pulling out the wheat at the same time. Instead, wait until the harvest, then the workers will separate the two. And for me, that answers an awful lot of questions about why God often allows some people to carry on infiltrating the flock and deceiving them. You know, it bothers me. But that really helps me because... Rather than plucking them out and risking damaging his children, he asks us to stay close to the shepherd instead. And then we can make sure that we spend our effort focusing on learning his truth so that we won't get deceived. There's one final point I'd like to make, and that is that not everyone has the same instructions in the Bible on this matter. And actually, false teachers should not be completely free just to run amok. 
Titus 1, my last one, elders are given a responsibility that the rest of us don't shoulder. After describing, a bit like in Timothy, where it describes the qualities to look for in appointing leaders, appointing elders, it goes on to say this. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. And they do it only for money. The people responsible for a congregation are the ones that are charged with silencing false teachers, not the rest of us. They carry this extra weight of responsibility for the doctrine that's taught to us. So I think it's really important that we pray for them because that's not easy and I'm kind of glad it's not my job. So if we have any concerns about things that other people are saying, we can take them to leadership. That's the appropriate place to take concerns. And then their job is to bring wholesome teaching to us, to correct errors, and to silence false teaching. Our job is to focus on truth, to walk in love, and just avoid those who are a bit dodgy. We t- We do our best to make sure that we only let godly people influence us in what we read and listen to. And the elders do their best to only let godly people have any influence within the church. So I think on that, I think it's probably appropriate to pray. (laughs) I hope that wasn't too intense. There were so many scriptures. Um, So I I want to pray. I want to pray for our leaders um, and I want to pray for us. So thank you, God, that you have put in place godly leadership within this church, leadership that we can trust, whose hearts are towards you and that that is quite evident. I pray that you would help them, that you would guard them from things that seek to come in and to destroy them, to destroy us, to just take people off track. I pray that you would give them an increase in wisdom and discernment. You'd give them an increase in knowledge and how to apply it. I pray that you would protect this flock, God, from people who seek to do it harm, and that you would give each of us an increase in discernment and eyes to see what is good and from you, and the wisdom to avoid that which is not from you. I pray you would help us every day to walk more in your spirit and to sacri- uh, to leave the things of the flesh behind. Yeah. That in every way we might grow up into Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.